Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, I love you guys, and I love worshiping with you on Sundays. And I love having our Bibles open in the book of Matthew. We're continuing this sermon series through Matthew's Gospel. And if you ask, what's the strategic reason to be in Matthew's Gospel? I would tell you that Jesus is the strategic reason to be in Matthew's gospel. Page after page, we meet Jesus. We learn more and more deeply who he is and what he has done in order to redeem us. I wonder if you know the experience of being criticized by somebody whose opinion you care deeply about, or the experience of being criticized by somebody who commands respect. You know, the ancient wisdom of Scripture from Solomon tells us that that the power of life and the power of death, as it were, are in the tongue. As other people speak to us, it has the ability to give us life and it has the ability to cut somewhere just about as deep as death. And so when critical words are spoken from a spouse or from a parent or from a close friend, if those critical words are not spoken with a kind of redemptive love to them, And doubly so if those critical words are not spoken with a kind of redemptive love and they're not really on base. I mean, that can cut deep, right? Or to be criticized by people who command respect. Religious leaders. I know what that's like myself. Because I've experienced the cutting pain of sitting across the table from a pastor who I respected deeply. Whose words had ministered to me so deeply. And yet as I sat across the table from him and interacted, I found his interactions in person to be perplexingly different in his interactions or the way he seemed on stage. And instead of speaking words of hope and grace and life 
as I had heard him speak from the pulpit, he spoke words that were angry and self-protecting and demeaning toward me and other people. It was confusing, perplexing, hurtful, disorienting. I, I run out of words. Maybe you've had that experience if you've participated in a fundamentalist Baptist church or if you've participated in a Pentecostal church or if you've participated in a Presbyterian church or if you've experienced in a Sovereign Grace church or the list could go on and on and on. Far too many of us know so deeply and so personally what it feels like to be criticized with a heart that isn't expressing redemptive love and maybe isn't even right on target with God's word in a way that cuts deep, in a way that wounds rather than redeems. We're reading a passage today in which Jesus' disciples will hear beautiful words from Jesus. But before we hear these beautiful words from Jesus in verses 1 and 2, we read how other religious leaders, known as Pharisees, used their words to condemn Jesus' disciples. Let's think a little bit about how the story unfolds before we get to Jesus' own words in this passage. When did it take place? It all took place on a Sabbath day. Going back generations and generations, the Jewish people treated the seventh day of the week as a holy day. This practice had its roots in the law of Moses, in the Ten Commandments. And so we read what we call the fourth commandment like this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so, for generation after generation, after six days of hard work, all Jewish people were invited to celebrate a 24-hour holiday every single week. It was to be a day of freedom from labor. Not just for those who were wealthy or in the middle class, but for people at every level of society, regardless of social status, regardless of citizenship status, regardless of culture of origin, the lowest servants and the most foreign of refugees alike were invited into this day of rest. And yet this day of rest was something more than a weekly vacation. It was meant to be a day devoted to the Lord God. So 52 weeks a year, generation after generation, the Jewish people maintained this practice of the Sabbath rest. And now we come to what happens here in Matthew chapter 12. 
On this specific Sabbath day, we find a Jewish man named Jesus and his crew of disciples walking along in a rural country road somewhere not too far from the Sea of Galilee. And the text tells us that Jesus' disciples on this Sabbath day are feeling hungry. Now when it says that they're feeling hungry, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dying of starvation. But it does imply something beyond just wanting a snack. The followers of this traveling rabbi need something to eat. Will Jesus perform a miracle in order to provide for his disciples' hunger? Not on this day. Because you see, God had already provided for their hunger. In the law of Moses, there is this beautiful set of laws designed to provide for those in need. The law of Moses explicitly directed Jewish farmers to allow those in need to eat what they could grab with their hands as they passed along beside a field. You can see that most clearly, for example, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. Total tangent here for about 60 seconds or so. Um, but when I was a kid, uh, part of my childhood, I lived in a part of Southern California on the edge of the desert, surrounded by groves of orange trees and lemon trees and avocado trees. And I benefited from this kind of thing myself because as a 12-year-old kid, if I was out for a bike ride on a trail on a hot, sunny summer day with the sun beating down on me, I understood that you could stop. If you were riding along a trail on a summer day with the heat beating down on you and you saw a ripe, juicy Valencia orange hanging out from an orange grove over the trail, I knew that you could reach out and take one of those oranges as God's provision for you on that summer afternoon. In fact, at one point as a conscientious kid, having taken one or two such oranges, I came home and I asked my dad, is that okay? Was I stealing those oranges? And he reassured me that according to his interpretation of the laws of California, I wasn't stealing anything. So as far as that goes, even here's my point is even as a 12 year old kid who was just a short bike ride away from a refrigerator of food at home, I felt God God's kind provision in those ripe Valencia oranges hanging out over the trail. And in a similar way, according to Deuteronomy 23-25, as, as people passed through the fields in, uh, among the Jewish people, it was determined that they should be able to eat what they could grab as they were passing along as God's way of providing for travelers in need. However, along, somewhere along the way, somebody perceived this tension between two things in God's Word. On the one hand, there is this provision of God that you can grab grain as you're passing through the fields. The text of Scripture allows it. On the other hand, there is this command in the Ten Commandments... 
that tells you that on the Sabbath day, you shall not do any labor. And some perceived a tension between these two teachings of Scripture. And what do we do when we perceive a tension between two teachings of Scripture? Usually we respond to that tension in one of two ways. Some people will respond to seeing what is revealed in Scripture by expecting something less than what God's Word clearly allows. We say, well, there's kind of a tension here, so who cares? Do what you want. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Well, on the other hand, instead of requiring less than what God's Word requires, sometimes we respond to a perceived tension in Scripture by requiring more than God's Word requires, right? We don't just say, you've got to do what God's Word says. We say, you've got to do what God's Word says, and here's a whole bunch of extra rules to make sure that you don't miss doing what God's Word says. Sometimes we miss God's Word by saying less than what God's Word says. And sometimes we miss God's Word by saying more than what God's Word says. Well, if you've read the the stories about Jesus and the Pharisees before, as they're recorded in the Scriptures, you're probably familiar with the fact that in many cases... The Pharisees found this group of Jewish teachers in Jesus' day, found tensions in Scripture, and tended to, tended to respond by adding extra layers of requirements on top of what God's Word actually said. And so when God's Word said, you shall, you, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy without doing any labor, they added 39 categories of labor which were prohibited on the Lord's, on, on the Sabbath day, including harvesting grain. And so on this Sabbath day, Jesus is walking along and his hungry disciples on this Sabbath day are taking grain from the field and they're crushing it in their hands and they're, they're eating a snack that God has provided for their hunger. It doesn't explicitly tell us whether Jesus told them to do this or not, but certainly he isn't prohibiting them from doing it. And leaders from the local synagogue are nearby. Leaders from the local synagogue who have been trained by the Pharisees and have learned the 39 extra rules on top of God's word. And they come and they challenge Jesus and they challenge his disciples about their, about their practice of grabbing some grain and eating it on the Sabbath. You see their challenge in verse 2. The Pharisees saw it and they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're correcting Jesus. They're correcting his disciples. And here's the thing, the tone of it the effect of it is not just a little bit of honest dialogue about how to best apply Exodus chapter 20. 
the tone of it, the effect of it is not just somebody being a little bit annoying by saying, well, I have my way of doing it. The tone of it, the effect of their criticism is named by Jesus in verse 7 as condemning the guiltless. Their critique of Jesus' disciples is not just a little bit of honest criticism to help them grow. No, their critique of Jesus' disciples has this effect. Leading those who had not done anything wrong to believe that they now stand condemned by God's word. It's a misuse of authority. It's a misuse of a Bible. It's an abuse of authority. It's spiritual abuse with the Bible. To impose your rules on somebody else and bind their conscience in such a way that they now feel condemned for having disobeyed God's laws when in fact they were only disregarding human regulations. That's the setting of this passage. Some local respected religious leaders see Jesus and his disciples. And they speak words to Jesus' disciples when they are doing nothing wrong according to God's word. In such a way as to lead the disciples of Jesus to feel condemned by God. How does Jesus respond? We want to pay attention, especially in this passage, to Jesus' response to this misuse of spiritual authority. How does Jesus respond to the condemnation that respected teachers are heaping up on his disciples? First of all, Jesus explains the scriptures more clearly. The first thing that we see is Jesus explains scripture. Notice how the story unfolds. They've just said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 3, Jesus said to them, have you not read? Now just pause there for a second and appreciate the, the sweet irony of Jesus' interaction with these Bible teachers. He looks right back at the Bible teachers. He looks back at these Bible enthusiasts. He looks back at these scripture experts. And he says, well, haven't you read what's here for you to read? Haven't you read, he says, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful to him, for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So issue number one, Jesus says, haven't you read about King David? I mean, isn't he like one of the heroes of all of 1 Samuel? Haven't you read about great King David? Pointing back to a story that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And for a moment you can almost imagine the leaders of the local synagogue 
trained by the Pharisees, squinting back at Jesus and saying, yes, we've read about what King David did, but he was King David entering the temple. Who do you think you are? And then Jesus moves on from, haven't you read about King David? And he says next in verse 5, haven't you read about the priests? And he refers to a number of things that are found in the law of Moses that refer to the fact that the priests in some ways had to do twice as much work on a Sabbath day as they had to do on a regular day of the week. And this is according to God's own law. So first of all, Jesus says, haven't you read about King David and his approach to the Sabbath? And maybe the Pharisees squint back and say, that's about a king and his people. And then he says, haven't you read about the priests and how they use the Sabbath? And you can almost see the Pharisees squinting back at him and saying, that's about priests. Who do you think you are? And Jesus has an answer. It's a provocative answer in verse 7. Excuse me, in verse 6. He says to them something greater than even the temple itself is here. Jesus goes even further and he says, If you had understood the prophet Hosea, Quotes from Hosea chapter 6, a verse that Jesus quotes more than once in the Gospels. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you had understood the prophet Hosea, then you would not be condemning the guiltless today. Notice this. When leaders misuse Scripture, Jesus doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, let's just give up on this Bible thing because it doesn't seem to be working very well. When people misuse and twist the Scriptures toward wrong purposes, Jesus says, let's go back to the text itself. Let's understand Exodus chapter 20. Let's understand that scripture by interpreting it by other scriptures. Which is a practice of biblical interpretation that Christians have called across the years interpreting scripture with scripture. He's just saying, we've got the Exodus 20 command. Now how did that work out in 1 Samuel chapter 21? Now, how did that work out according to the law of Moses for the priests? Now, how did that work out according to the words of Hosea the prophet? Jesus doesn't respond to a misuse of scriptures by saying, let's forget the scriptures. They aren't working very well. He responds to a misuse of scripture by pressing more deeply into scripture itself. 
A second thing that Jesus does in response to this misuse of Scripture, He not only explains the Scriptures, but He also applies the Scriptures. And He applies them in a really specific way. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 7. As He's pressing home His case here, He says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus doesn't just engage in debate for the sake of debate. Now, I want to say this as somebody who has realized in my own life and in my own history that I can too easily be baited into debate for the sake of debate. So if that's you, I get it. I've been argumentative at times. I've loved a good old-fashioned a good old-fashioned debate over something in the Bible just because it's fun. But I've also learned to recognize very often that's not based in the image of Christ being shaped in me. That's based in pride and arrogance on my part. Jesus engages in debate. He engages in disagreement, not out of some inner sense of pride and trying to prove himself, Rather, Jesus engages in debate with a really specific kind of purpose. I would even call it a redemptive purpose. But redemptive in a particular kind of way. There's this theme across the pages of the Bible that we we sometimes call this theme of redemptive reversals. And so when the people of God are set free from slavery in Egypt, what happens? Maybe as American Christians, we get really excited about the fact that the slaves are set free. But what else happens? The Egyptian rulers have to be brought down in judgment. There's this issue of redemptive reversals. The proud will be humbled. And the humble shall be exalted. This theme of redemptive reversals, which Jesus himself is keenly aware of and loves to repeat, is at work here in Jesus' application point as he goes to Hosea chapter 6 and says, If you knew what this meant, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What's going on there in Jesus' application? On the one hand, he is defending the humble. I mean, if you just can picture yourself there as one of the disciples for just a moment. You're doing your best to follow Jesus. And in a moment of hunger, you're doing what you believe Scripture allows and what Jesus has set you free to do. You're grabbing some grain and you're eating it. And along comes another teacher and they scold you beyond scolding you. They condemn you. They speak words that are designed to lead you to feel condemned before God. But here is Jesus standing up, as that song said that we sang earlier, speaking a better word. Speaking, standing up and speaking a word in defense of His beloved. Standing up and speaking On our behalf. On the one hand here, Jesus is 
speaking in a way that defends the humble. And in a way, I just want to pause long enough to say, Christian, do you know that he is still speaking in defense of the humble today? Do you know that his blood still speaks a better word today? And so when you are hearing condemning words, whether they're condemning words from a loved one or condemning words from a teacher, condemning words from a friend, or perhaps even condemning words from the accuser himself, the enemy of our souls who is called an accuser. Why? Because he loves to wage accusations of condemnation. At Jesus and his disciples. When you hear condemning words and condemning accusations, where can you go? You can go back to Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart. You can go back to Jesus, who speaks a better word. You can go back to Jesus Christ who vindicates you, who has declared you righteous. Where can we go when we hear accusations of condemnation? We can go back to our Lord Jesus who not only spoke words in defense of his own while he walked on this earth, but who gave his very own life as a sacrifice for all our sins and rose again in new life and promised us life forevermore with Him. You know that that hymn that we sometimes like to sing? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do we do? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. When you hear accusations, whether from someone you love or some teacher or from the enemy himself, look to Jesus and hear the better words of the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Look to him. What is Jesus doing as he applies these words With a redemptive reversal, Jesus is defending the humble, but not only defending the humble. He's also humbling the proud. You see, for reasons that are mysterious sometimes to me, Jesus does let bad teachers continue to mouth off. But not forever. In this passage here, Jesus silenced the condemning accusations of those who would misuse Scripture in order to condemn those who are loved by Jesus. He silenced them. And listen, the same Lord Jesus Christ will one day come and silence for all time 
those who in their arrogance have dared to misuse God's word in order to condemn those who are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. For reasons that I don't fully understand, the Lord does continue to let abusers continue to mouth off, but not forever. He will one day come. And when he does, he will not only exalt the humble, he will humble the proud. And why does Matthew record these words for the church in his day to hear? Why does the Holy Spirit put this in Scripture for us to hear today? Because it's important for us to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ stands up and wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With a purpose. To defend his beloved. And to humble the proud. And what would that have meant to those who were in Matthew's congregation. Who first read these words. What does the Holy Spirit want us to get out of that today? Since some of you have been wounded. By words of those who sometimes, sadly, with a Bible in their hand or pretending to be speaking in the name of the Lord, have sought to leave you feeling condemned. Listen, I want you to know that our Lord Jesus Christ, as He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, is not like those teachers. He is gentle. Lowly in heart. And he will stand in your defense. In fact, he lives evermore to intercede on your behalf. But also, perhaps there were some in the church that first read this, and perhaps there are some hearing today who need to be warned. Maybe Jesus has let you mouth off for a little while, but he will not forever. And there is a word of rebuke here in this passage for those who would take God's word in hand. And perhaps we say, well, I'm not requiring less than God's word. But perhaps if we're honest, we realize that we're expecting of others much more than God's word itself expects of them. Sometimes with the effect of leaving people feeling condemned. Even though they truly are Jesus' beloved. And there is a word of warning. Jesus applies God's word. He wields the sword of the Spirit. In order to lift up the humble. But also to humble the proud. What does Jesus do? In response to these leaders who are misusing God's words. First of all, he explains scripture. Secondly, he applies scripture. But thirdly, Jesus shows how he fulfills scripture. He fulfills it. 
He tells us that He is the Lord of the true Sabbath rest. In fact, Jesus' unique status, not just as one teacher among many in a long line of people who have stood up and spoken and said, I'm going to tell you what God thinks. Jesus' unique status above and beyond all that line of teachers in the past is echoed throughout this whole passage. I mean, Jesus comes and he says, you know why I and my disciples can use the Sabbath this way? Do you remember what King David and his people did? You know what the priests did? Something greater than the temple is here. You know the words of the prophet? I will speak on God's behalf. And I will tell you in the name of the Lord himself, I desire mercy. Throughout this passage, Jesus is setting himself up, not only in alignment with Scripture, but as one who uniquely fulfills it. And then we get this zinger at the end. When Jesus says, you want to talk about the Sabbath? I'll tell you about the Sabbath. I'll tell you that as one who is able to say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath rest. We saw last week Jesus' wonderful invitation in Matthew 11:28 through 30 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you what rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me and we looked at this last week that that reminds us that following jesus means something there is a learning of his way Jesus doesn't come and say, I'm freeing you to do whatever you feel like all the time. There is a way that Jesus calls us into. But come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle, lowly, in the very core of my heart. And from me you will find what? Rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And Matthew intentionally takes this teaching of Jesus. And he sets it right alongside this event that happened on one Sabbath day. As other leaders who were not gentle and were not lowly in heart came and spoke to Jesus' beloved in ways that were calculated to leave them feeling condemned. And when that happened, Jesus stood up and said, I'll tell you about the Sabbath. Not just as one voice among many, but as one who came to fulfill all that the Scriptures point to. He calls Himself the Lord Of the true Sabbath rest. Suggesting that all of those other Sabbaths. Week after week. 52 weeks a year. Ceasing from labor. And devoting time to God. 
week after week, generation after generation. What was the point of all of those little Sabbath rests week after week after week after week? The point was not simply or not only that God's people would feel refreshed for the next six days of work. The point was to point to something more that was coming. To a greater rest which was still to come. To a greater rest that Hebrews chapter 4 insists is still for us as believers in Jesus is still yet to be fully experienced. But a true kind of rest that we can begin to experience even right now today. How? By coming to Him. Now some people will read this passage about Sabbath and get interested in a whole lot of questions about, well, wait a second. Why do Christians worship on Sundays instead of Saturdays? Do we have to worship on Sunday or Saturday? And I'm going to kind of cop out for a second and say, I don't think that's the main point that Matthew chapter 12 is getting at. Matthew chapter 12 is not here to say you have to worship Jesus on Saturday or Sunday or something like that. It's here to tell us something about Jesus who is the fulfillment of everything that those Sabbath rests pointed to. So what do we do as Christians in light of that? Well, listen, I want to say kind of, I'll say this kind of simply and I hope relatively quickly. I've got my habits in life that I think are helpful. I've got habits that I commend to you. Habits like gathering with other Christians for worship on a weekly basis. That's a habit that I cherish and a habit that I commend. Habits like praying in a disciplined and devoted way. That's a habit I cherish and that brings me rest and that brings me life. And it's a habit I commend to you. Gathering with others for worship. Praying. Taking time off from work so that we don't blow a gasket and wear ourselves down. We're human beings. We were limited by design. We don't rest only because we're fallen. We rest because we're human and we're limited. And we don't just rest because work is bad. No, just the opposite. As Christians, we believe in a God who did His work for six full days and it was very good. And then what did He do? He rested because that also is very good. And so as a Christian, I have these habits in my life. I do gather with other Christians for worship on the day that the Lord rose from the dead, the first day of the week, as Christians have for 2,000 years now. I have my habits of gathering with others for worship. I have my habits of devoted times for prayer. I have my habits of stepping away from work because that too is good. But as a Christian... I don't get my rest in my habits. As a Christian, I have my habits, but I don't put my hope in my habits. As a Christian, 
I have my habits, but I don't find my life in those habits. As a Christian, I insist that I find my hope and my life and my everything in Him. In the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Which means that if we're followers of Jesus, we don't only get rest one day a week. And we don't only have rest, access to rest on days that are designated for prayer. We don't only have rest on days that are set aside from work. No, if we're Christians, we have access to the one who truly gives refreshment on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday and on Sunday alike. And what are all those other habits good for? Those other habits are good for this, pointing our hearts back to him. So that once again, we can come to the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. As Christians, we don't put our hope in our practice of a certain Sabbath fulfillment that we do. We put our hope in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Sabbath fulfillment for all time. Jesus tells us that he is the Lord of the true Sabbath rest. And maybe if I could just put it this way for a second, I wonder if some of us know that Jesus is Lord. But I wonder if some of us need to see and even feel and be refreshed by today the Sabbathness of Jesus, if you will. He's a Lord, but He's a Lord of Sabbath. Not just a Lord who drives us and drives us and drives us until we drop down without any more energy. He is the Lord of the true Sabbath rest. And so as you come to Him, in habits like gathering together today. And as you come to Him in habits of daily crying out in prayer. And as you come to Him in rhythms of life where you stop doing your work and recognize you're a limited and fallen human being. As you come to Jesus, do you know what you can expect to find? You can expect to meet not just a Lord who is another kind of slave driver, who speaks words that will leave you feeling condemned. You know what you'll find as you come to Jesus? As we come to the real Jesus Christ, we find we find that He is gentle and lowly to the very core of His being. And in Him, we find rest for our souls. For in the yoke of getting yoked up alongside him and learning to follow his ways, we find out that his yoke is easy. And his kind of burden, it's not like the burden of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's light. Scribes and the Pharisees had one way of teaching about prayer. Jesus had another. Don't pray like them. 
heaping up empty phrases, standing out on the street corners. Don't pray like them. No, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees had one way of teaching about fulfilling many of the Lord's commandments, including the Sabbath, and very often it led to people feeling condemned. Condemned not because that's the heart of God for His beloved, but condemned because of the layers of extra regulations that are piled up on top and used as a weapon against others. Jesus speaks a better word. Just as He calls us to prayer, but not like the Pharisees. He calls us to Sabbath rest, but not like the Pharisees do. He says, come to Me. And I will give you rest, speaking as the Lord of the true Sabbath rest. In sum, what do we read about here in this passage? We read that when disciples are condemned by false teachers, the Lord of the Sabbath rest himself wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God on our behalf, in order to defend the humble and to humble the proud. And what should we do with this portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ? As we read the book of Matthew and we learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and as we learn what it means to make disciples among all nations, what do we do with this portrait of Jesus specifically? Well, we do exactly what Matthew eleven twenty eight was inviting us to do. We come to Him, the true Lord of the Sabbath rest, that in Him we may have life. We come to the One who lived a perfect life for us and gave Himself as a sacrifice for all our sins and now lives forevermore to intercede for us so that He might save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through faith in Him. We come to Him so that in Him we may find rest. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.